Chapter Fifty Four of Adam Bede. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Belinda Brown of Indianapolis, Indiana. Adam Bede by George Eliot. Chapter Fifty Four. The Meeting on the Hill. Adam understood Dinah's haste to go away, and drew hope rather than discouragement from it. She was fearful lest the strength of her feelings toward him should hinder her from waiting and listening faithfully to the ultimate guiding voice from within. "'I wish I'd ask her to write to me, though,' he thought. "'And yet, even that might disturb her a bit, perhaps. "'She wants to be quite quiet in her old way for a while.' And I've no right to be impatient in interrupting her with my wishes. She's told me what her mind is, and she's not a woman to say one thing and mean another. I'll wait patiently. That was Adam's wise resolution, and it throve excellently for the first two or three weeks on the nourishment it got from the remembrance of Dinah's confession that Sunday afternoon. There is a wonderful amount of sustenance in the first few words of love, but towards the middle of October the resolution began to dwindle perceptibly, and showed dangerous symptoms of exhaustion. The weeks were unusually long. Dinah must surely have had more than enough time to make up her mind. Let a woman say what she will after she has once told a man that she loves him, he is a little too flushed and exalted with that first draught that she offers him to care much about the taste of the second. He treads the earth with a very elastic step as he walks away from her and makes light of all difficulties. But that sort of glow dies out. Memory gets sadly diluted with time and is not strong enough to revive us. Adam was no longer so confident as he had been. He began to fear that perhaps Dinah's old life would have too strong a grasp upon her for any new feelings to triumph. If she had not felt this, she would surely have written to him to give him some comfort. But it appeared that she held it right to discourage him. As Adam's confidence waned, his patience waned with it, and he thought he must write himself. He must ask Dinah not to leave him in painful doubt longer than was needful. He sat up late one night to write her a letter, but the next morning he burnt it, afraid of its effect. It would be worse to have a discouraging answer by letter than from her own lips, for her presence reconciled him to her will. You perceive how it was. Adam was hungering for the sight of Dinah, and when that sort of hunger reaches a certain stage, a lover is likely to still it, though he may have to put his future in pawn. But what harm could he do by going to Snowfield? Dinah could not be displeased with him for it. She had not forbidden him to go. She must surely expect that he would go before long. By the second Sunday in October, this view of the case had become so clear to Adam that he was already on his way to Snowfield, on horseback this time, for his hours were precious now, and he had borrowed Jonathan Burge's good nag for the journey. What keen memories went along the road with him! 
He had often been to Oakburn and back since that first journey to Snowfield, but beyond Oakburn, the grey stone walls, the broken country, the meagre trees, seemed to be telling him afresh the story of that painful past which he knew so well by heart. But no story is the same to us after a lapse of time, or rather, we who read it are no longer the same interpreters, and Adam, this morning brought with him, new thoughts through the gray country, thoughts which gave an altered significance to its story of the past. That is a base and selfish, even a blasphemous spirit, which rejoices and is thankful over the past evil that has blighted or crushed another, because it has been made a source of unforeseen good to ourselves. Adam could never cease to mourn over that mystery of human sorrow which had been brought so close to him. He could never thank God for another's misery. And if I were capable of that narrow-sighted joy in Adam's behalf, I should still know he was not the man to feel it for himself. He would have shaken his head at such a sentiment, and said, Evil's evil, and sorrow's sorrow, and you can't alter its nature by wrapping it up in other words. Other folks were not created for my sake, that I should think all square when things turn out well for me. But it is not ennoble to feel that the fuller life which a sad experience has brought us is worth our own personal share of pain. Surely it is not possible to feel otherwise any more than it would be possible for a man with cataract to forget the painful process by which his dim, blurred sight of men as trees walking had been exchanged for clear outline and effulgent day. The growth of higher feeling within us is like the growth of faculty, bringing with it senses of added strength. We can no more wish to return to a narrower sympathy than a painter or a musician can wish to return to his cruder manner or a philosopher to his less complete formula. Something like this sense of enlarged being was in Adam's mind this Sunday morning as he rode along in vivid recollection of the past. His feelings towards Dinah, the hope of passing his life with her, had been the distant unseen point toward which that hard journey from Snowfield eighteen months ago had been leading him. Tender and deep as his love for Hetty had been, so deep that the roots of it would never be torn away, his love for Dinah was better and more precious to him, for it was the outgrowth of that fuller life which had come to him from his acquaintance with deep sorrow. It's like as if it was a new strength to me, he said to himself, to love her and know as she loves me. I shall look to her to help me see things right, for she's better than I am. There's less of herself in her and pride, and it's a feeling as gives you a sort of liberty, as if you could walk more fearless. When you've more trust in another, than you have in yourself. I've always been thinking I knew better than them as belong to me, and that's a poor sort of life, when you can't look to them nearest to you to help you with a bit better thought than what you've got inside you already. It was more than two o'clock in the afternoon when Adam came inside of the gray town on the hillside 
and look searchingly toward the green valley below, for the first glimpse of the old-thatched roof near the ugly red mill. The scene looked less harsh in the soft October sunshine than it had in the eager time of early spring, and the one grand charm it possessed in common with all wide-stretching woodless regions, that it filled you with a new consciousness of the overarching sky, had a milder, more soothing influence than usual on this almost cloudless day. Adam's doubts and fears melted under this influence as the delicate web-like clouds had gradually melted away into the clear blue above him. He seemed to see Dinah's gentle face assuring him, with its looks alone, of all he longed to know. He did not expect Dinah to be at home at this hour, but he got down from his horse and tied it at the little gate, that he might ask where she had gone to-day. He had set his mind on following her and bringing her home. She was gone to Sloman's End, a hamlet about three miles off, over the hill, the old woman told him, had set off directly after the morning's chapel to preach in a cottage there, as her habit was. Anybody at town would tell him the way to Sloman's End. So Adam got on his horse again and rode to the town, putting up at the old inn and taking a hasty dinner there in the company of the too chatty landlord, from whose friendly questions and reminiscence he was glad to escape as soon as possible and set out toward Sloman's End. With all his haste it was nearly four o'clock before he could set off and he thought that Dinah had gone so early she would perhaps already be near returning. The little, gray, desolate-looking hamlet, unscreened by sheltering trees, lay in sight long before he reached it, and as he came near he could hear the sound of voices singing a hymn. Perhaps that's the last hymn before they come away, Adam thought. I'll walk back a bit and turn again to meet her farther off the village. He walked back till he got nearly to the top of the hill again and seated himself on a loose stone against the low wall to watch till he should see the little black figure leaving the hamlet and winding up the hill. He chose this spot, almost at the top of the hill, because it was away from all eyes, no house, no cattle, not even a nibbling sheep near no presence but the still lights and shadows and the great embracing sky. She was much longer coming than he expected. He waited an hour at least, watching for her and thinking of her, while the afternoon shadows lengthened and the light grew softer. At last he saw the little black figure coming from between the gray houses and gradually approaching the foot of the hill. Slowly, Adam thought, but Dinah was really walking at her usual pace, with a light, quiet step. Now she was beginning to wind along the path up the hill, but Adam would not move yet. He would not meet her too soon. He had set his heart on meeting her in this assured loneliness, and now he began to fear lest he should startle her too much. Yet, he thought, she's not one to be over-startled, She's always so calm and quiet, as if she was prepared for anything. What was she thinking of as she wound up the hill? Perhaps she had found complete repose without him, 
and had ceased to feel any need of his love. On the verge of a decision we all tremble, hope pauses with fluttering wings. But now at last she was very near, and Adam rose from the stone wall. It happened that just as he walked forward, Dinah had paused and turned round to look back at the village. Who does not pause and look back in the mounting of a hill? Adam was glad, for, with the fine instinct of a lover, he felt that it would be best for her to hear his voice before she saw him. He came within three paces of her, and then said, Dinah. She started without looking round, as if she connected the sound with no place. Dinah, Adam said again, and he knew quite well what was in her mind. She was so accustomed to think of impressions as purely spiritual monitions that she looked for no material, visible accompaniment of the voice. But this second time she looked round. What a look of yearning love it was that the mild gray eyes turned on the strong dark-eyed man. She did not start again at the sight of him. She said nothing, but moved towards him so that his arm could clasp her round and they walked on so in silence, while the warm tears fell. Adam was content and said nothing. It was Dinah who spoke first. Adam, she said, it is the divine will. My soul is so knit to yours that it is but a divided life I live without you. And this moment, now you are with me, and I feel that our hearts are filled with the same love. I have a fullness of strength to bear and do our Heavenly Father's will that I had lost before. Adam paused and looked into her sincere eyes. Then we'll never part any more, Dinah, till death parts us? And they kissed each other with deep joy. What greater thing is there for two human souls than to feel that they are joined for life, to strengthen each other in all labor, to rest on each other in all sorrow, to minister to each other in all pain, to be one with each other in silent, unspeakable memories at the moment of the last parting. End of chapter 54 Reading by Belinda Brown of Indianapolis, Indiana